Lugano is now under a state of emergency. It's been a From the direction Well, it would be difficult to have a discussion on the Bible prophecy future events without touching on that supernatural forecast known as the rapture. You probably have heard of this. You don't have to be a church person to have heard of this idea that Jesus Christ will return one day to gather his followers and in the twinkling of an eye, bring his believers back to heaven to live with him forever. Uh, Maybe you're one of the 65 million people who has read one of the Left Behind novels. Show of hands, let's be honest. Who has read at least one of these? Who's read more than one? Two, three, four, five, sixteen. There's a ton of them. All of them, Chris has. The interesting thing is, yeah, don't give away the ending, Chris. Now listen, as I said, you don't have to even be religious to have been exposed to end times prophecy for this event. Uh, Just last month, as I was kind of doing some research, I was watching TV and ran across this promotional video from the History Channel. Suddenly, there would be bedlam, chaos. It would be a desperate struggle for survival. When doomsday prophecies converge with current events, it's what we call the Nostradamus Effect. All new, Wednesday at 9 on History, made every day. I think the History Channel is a great example of why the rapture is surrounded by so much confusion and misunderstanding. Nostradamus, of course, has nothing to do with this. Uh, And to be honest, most Christians have heard of this event, but don't really understand it if they're honest. Uh, For instance, most Christians know the prophecy is called the rapture, yet they have little idea why that is. The term doesn't even appear in the Bible. They don't know what it means or what specifically is supposed to take place, and so they tend to get very scared because they're ill-informed. My first encounter came with this in the 70s when a low-budget Christian movie came out called Thief in the Night. Does anybody else? Okay, nod your head if you remember this one. Okay, tell us the story of this very nice but unsaved girl named Patty who wakes up and realizes she got left behind. And thanks to YouTube, I found the trailer. Speculation is running high that some alien force from outside our system has declared war on our planet. And there will be no place to hide. A thief in the night. I wish we'd all been ready. Now to the screen comes a powerful story of Bible prophecy. I know what's going on is evil, but I'm not going to join it. A thief in the night is coming from Mark IV Pictures in color. Please do not reveal the ending. (laughs) Please do not reveal the ending. I wish... That scared the daylights out of me. 
I was eight years old when I first saw this. It made the rounds to a lot of churches in the 70s. And if you're eight years old and you hear one day, you may come home and mom and dad are dis- have disappeared, it freaks you out, okay? Uh, in the opening scene, Patty actually wakes up. Her radios are playing this report, this news report that millions of people have disappeared from the face of the earth. She gets up and goes to the bathroom and she finds, I'll never forget this image, an electric razor buzzing in the sink. Do you remember this, anybody? And it's her beloved Jim who was about to shave and he was raptured and she's left behind. And when I saw that and I was, I was seven or eight years old, it just, it just startled me something awful. The weeks following that, I would run home as a boy from school, because my mom would always be in the kitchen when I got home, and just to, you know, burst in the door, just like, Mom, Mom, are you here? And she's just like, yeah, what's going on? And my brother, who was five years old, he'd always be like, dude, you're definitely getting left behind, man. <laughs> you are. I don't, just, I'm sorry. So one day, my mom had to go out for groceries, left my older brother. He's like, Ted, you know, be here when Tim comes home. So my brother gets home ahead of me, and then when I arrive, he's not there. He's hiding in a closet, and he's left a handwritten note that says, Tim, where were you? Jesus came back. You've been left behind. And the, and the ink just ran off the note onto the table. <laughs> Nothing like a little rapture humor from good old older brother Ted. When I grew up, uh, I kind of left those scare tactics behind in my childhood and realized the return of Christ actually is not something to dread, like a low-budget scare movie, honestly, but it really is to look forward to. That's the biblical perspective on this incredible prophecy that's supposed to be a source of great hope and joy. Uh, but even though I got over my fear, honestly, there was, still was confusion. Uh, like the History Channel, like, you know, so is this the end of the world? That's the same thing. Do, do people magically get zapped? Or what, what about believers who, who are, are dead? Do we go to heaven or, or do we stay here on earth? What happens? Here's my goal today. It's a very simple, modest one. I want to clear up for you the confusion and clarify exactly what the Bible says to expect. I want you to interact with Scripture. I want you to leave here with a clear understanding, not popular hype, about this core doctrine of the Christian faith. Because if you clearly understand what God promises is going to happen, you won't face the future with fear. You won't have this sense of dread hanging over you. Instead, you can live with a sense of certainty and faith in God's promises, which can give you confidence when you see stuff happening in the world around you, just as we've seen this past week with the earthquake in Haiti. Incredible. Because this is an incredibly hopeful prophecy. And you know what? What we believe in this life has major implications for the life to come. You understand that? Well, I'd invite you to take your Bible. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at chapter 4. And this is our main text today. I'm going to, you know, we'll, we'll put these on the screen, but let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles because I think there's something powerful about you interacting with God's Word for yourself, handling it, seeing what He says. Don't take my word for this. Um, and Thessalonians is the perfect place to start, because the Thessalonians were confused. They were confused people about the return of Christ. Um, they were a church at Thessalonica, and they believed Jesus was going to return someday. They understood the general idea. But they were all mixed up about how that would happen, and they were very worried. Not only that, they were mainly concerned about what happened to their family members and friends who had already died. Because they believed Jesus is going to return and, and draw, take all believers to heaven with them. But some of them, they'd buried loved ones. They'd buried parents in the ground. And they said, what's going to happen to them? So Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians explaining in detail exactly what to expect. So read with me uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll begin at verse 13. It says this. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no what? No hope. 
we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, this is a lot to take in, admittedly, and I just want to break this down carefully. Um, You'll notice first that Paul begins, he says, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant. This is his purpose for writing. He wasn't trying to be insulting or call the Thessalonians the Moronians, you know? He's not calling them stupid. What he was calling out is there was a lack of understanding about Christ's return within this church. And honestly, I think that ignorance, it still exists today to some degree, mainly among kind of modern believers, because when it comes to Christ's return, I think most people get two key events mixed up in their minds. That's the rapture and the second coming. I want to share with you a simple diagram that I think will help you get a handle on the events that God says will unfold in the future. If you take a look at it this way, you can throw it up there. The first coming of Christ, you know this, we celebrated when he was born in Bethlehem. That took Jesus to a cross where he died as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Three days later, he was resurrected, ascended to heaven. That's the incarnation, the first coming or advent of Christ. After Jesus left, The church was born, and we entered what we call the church age. That's where you and I are living right now. It's where the church actually represents the presence of God in the world. We do that imperfectly, don't we? (laughs) But one thing is, we're in the church age, and we are the bride of Christ. What happens next here in Thessalonians is known as the rapture. And you'll notice that the arrow here comes down, but then it turns skyward again. It never touches down, and here's the main reason. When Jesus returns, it says we will meet him in the air. He actually is not coming to land on the earth. He's coming to gather believers with him and return back to heaven. Now imagine a world instantly emptied of all Christians everywhere. I mean, the church of Christ is gone. All the salt, all the light leaves the earth. What happens next when you take out the salt is decay sets in. You take out the light, darkness sets in. That's a period of seven years known as the tribulation. Have you heard of it? We'll, get, we'll touch on this next week. It will be a time of catastrophic global upheaval. And in the battle of Armageddon, we will have the second coming of Christ. And you'll see the arrow go straight down because this is where Jesus returns to earth, not for his bride, but with her. He brings all believers who he raptured seven years earlier, and together they will establish the kingdom of God on earth, a time of peace that will last a thousand years. That is known as the millennium and then eternity will begin, and we will be with the Lord forever, as Paul says in verse 17. As you can see here, I think, honestly, the confusion comes with people who mix up the rapture and the second coming. They get it mixed up all together in their mind. They're like, I know Jesus is like coming back, and we kind of meet him, and there's like a battle or something, and we're in heaven, and then we're on, I don't, I don't know. Ignorance. That's what Paul was addressing. You see how it's easy to get confused, and understand this. There are no remaining prophetic signs that need to happen before the rapture takes place. Theologians speak of, um, of its imminence, meaning it can happen at any time. 
However, there are signs leading up to the second coming. That's what we touched on last week in Matthew 24. Remember that? Jesus said there will be wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, the contractions we're seeing. Jesus said, don't freak out. All of these are what? Do you remember what he called them? What? Birth pains. Good. They are simply signs leading up to the second coming or advent of Christ. And that's what we're seeing today. Now, I want you to just do the math. This is as complicated as it gets. If we are already seeing signs predicted for the second coming, and we are, that means the rapture is at least seven years closer. Make sense? Nod your head if you're tracking with me. The New Testament indicates the rapture of the church is the next major event on God's prophetic timeline. And it can happen at any moment. It is critical you keep these two events kind of distinct in your mind and separate because Jesus made a promise to his disciples. In John chapter 14, he said this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. You can throw that up on the screen. He says, In my Father's house there are many rooms If it were not so, I would have told you, and I am going there to what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's the promise that will be fulfilled at the rapture. The disciples had no idea of the specific details of Jesus' promise at the time. They had a general sense he was going to come back and he was preparing something. The Thessalonians didn't know details until Paul took the time to explain it to them right here. When Christ comes in the rapture, every man, woman, and child who has trusted in Jesus, he will take to be home in heaven with him. When he returns at the second coming, he will bring all those Christians who are raptured along with him back to this earth to establish his kingdom. Make sense? We're going to put this chart actually in our life group notes this week um, so you can refer back to it if you're interested in it. You can download it. Um, Paul begins his letter by just dispelling ignorance. He says, I want you to be informed here. Now watch. What he does next is he addresses what the burning question was on their heart. Because they had loved ones and they had friends who had died. And, um, you know, just to make this personal, uh, two weeks ago, a member of our staff got a phone call that, you know, no, no one wants to get. Our graphic designer, Simon, his 10-year-old niece was in a automobile accident back home in Australia, and she did not make it. She died. And it is, it is heart-wrenching. It is a tragedy. You can pray for Sim and Beck. They're actually in Australia right now attending the funeral of his 10-year-old niece. And uh, I know they appreciate your prayers and in, in their comfort, but any time death touches home, <laughs> you lose a family member. A loved one gets sick. A friend dies unexpectedly all of a sudden the future becomes very relevant, doesn't it? You start thinking about their eternity, where, where they spend forever. I mean, even, even if you're not a Christian, most people agree everybody spends forever somewhere. And the Thessalonians believed that. And that's why they were concerned, because they had family members who died. They buried their parents. They buried siblings in the ground. And Jesus hadn't come back yet. So they wondered, what about them? What happens to them? And Paul gives a very interesting answer to this very personal question. He says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And this is interesting because you'll notice Paul doesn't call believers who died dead people. He calls them 
Those who fall asleep. Now, what does that mean? Let me make this very personal and show you. So my kids and I have this weird thing we do. We like to visit cemeteries. Not to be morbid, but we like to look around and see the different inscriptions that they have on the tombstones. One time my little girl Chase said, Daddy, how come so many of the tombstones have the words at rest or rest in peace? R.I.P. Rest in peace. We see those inscriptions in cemeteries all the time. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul used an interesting phrase to describe those who died believing in Jesus Christ. He said, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. That word asleep is related to the Greek word koimaterion, from which we get our English word cemetery. And that's what the early Christians called the place where they buried their loved ones. A koimaterion, or a place where you go to sleep. Paul's day, the word koimaterion referred to a resting place or an overnight inn, what we would call hotels. It was a place where you could check in and get a good night's sleep and wake up refreshed and raring to go in the morning. That's why you see the phrase, rest in peace, on the early Christian tombstones. The Bible says that when Christians die, it's as if they've simply gone to sleep and are resting, ready to be awakened when Christ returns. And that's a hopeful perspective, because it means that for those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Death is not a tragic finality, but rather a peaceful sleep from which we will awake. Paul writes, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's very interesting. In the New Testament, after Jesus is resurrected, never again is it said that a disciple simply died. Stephen was stoned, and then he fell asleep. Lazarus did not die. He went to sleep. After David served his generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. And the idea here is that after Christ was resurrected, he abolished death so completely that the term, he or she just died, they're dead, no longer really applies to believers. Oh yeah, their, their, their body goes to sleep in a koimaterion. That's that Greek word that literally means cemetery. It means a sleeping place like an inn. That's what the early Christians used. They called it that. But the idea here, folks, is this. When a believer dies, their spirit or their soul goes immediately to be with God in heaven. Immediately. Their spirit is instantly in the presence of Christ. But their body, their physical body, is buried. It's put in a grave where in a sense it goes to sleep waiting to one day be revived or woken up. And this is the source of hope we have as followers of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's stunning. When we lose a Christian family member or friend, we're sad, we're sad. The Bible doesn't say don't be sad. We're saddened by despair. We're not, we're, we're not saddened by, by despair, but by the loss. That's what he's saying. We have hope, Paul says. He says, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no what? No Hope. We believe Jesus died. And then he rose again. So here's what we believe. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Every believer who dies in Christ has this promise. 
the solar spirit is immediately bound for heaven, and at the rapture, their body will be raised as well, raised back to life to be reunited with their spirit. And so Paul says, go ahead and, and be sad. You can grieve when you lose somebody, but don't do it without hope because you know where they are. And check this. At the rapture, when that wake-up call happens, they're going to meet the Lord ahead of you. Verse 15 says this, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, let's read it together, what? Will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's that term again. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The rapture is literally like a divine wake-up call. <laughs> you know how it tells you check in, you call the front desk, and you're like, hey, I need a, a wake-up call tomorrow at 6 a.m. That's the idea. All those cemeteries you drive by, all those graves, when the trumpet call of God goes out, those bodies that were once asleep will be renewed and raised to life like Jesus, and they will meet him in the air. And our loved ones will go ahead of us. Simon's niece gets to cut the line. You understand this? You and I, if we're living, we will see Christian family members and friends who died actually go ahead of us. That's the source of hope. For Christians, Paul says, um, he says, death has lost its sting. When Jesus was resurrected, it's like he pulled the stinger out of death. There, there's, there's still swelling and there's pain and there's tears when we lose someone we love, but death has lost its stinger. For a believer, death is like a temporary sleep before the reunion of the rapture. At that moment, we're told, all our bodies will be restored. Not to what they were when they died. Thank God. But glorified... Easy. But glorified on a level we have never really seen, it's called the great unveiling. I mean, no matter what happened to our bodies here on earth... When they meet the Lord in the air, they will be glorious. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. It says, listen, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We won't all die. But we will all be changed in a what? A flash. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. The dead will rise to meet Jesus in the air. They will have glorified bodies and Chris will walk again. It will be an amazing moment. This is so hopeful. It, is so, it could not be more relevant to our life on earth because it changes your perspective. That's a powerful way with Chris and walking again. There are other silly ways. Tom and I went out to breakfast the other day, Pastor Tom, and, uh, and we're, we're going out for breakfast, and he says, uh, I'm going to have an omelet, and he goes, could you put extra cheese and bacon on that? And, uh, and uh, then he says, and also, give me a side of bacon, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and I looked, I was like, hey, easy, big boy. He's like, back off. I'm waiting for my glorified body. You know, he's kind of... <laughs> This is an incredible prophecy. It is a source of hope for all who trust Christ for salvation. Now, what I want to do here, watch, now, track with me. What I want to do with our remaining time here is look at these four details that Paul gives about the rapture because he gives four features in, in detail. And if you're taking notes, very easy. The rapture you'll see includes a return followed by a resurrection. The rapture itself, we'll figure out where we get that word, and a reunion. Look at this quickly. Verse 16, it says plainly, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Notice it doesn't say Jesus will send his angels. He will not send the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself in the flesh will come down from heaven and we will see him in the air. We shouldn't be surprised by this. 
the disciples were told that he would return in the same way that he left, visibly and personally. In Acts 1.11, after Jesus ascends into heaven, they're asked, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back, how? In the same way you've seen him go into heaven. You'll see it. Bible says, at this moment, where's Jesus? His spirit is among us as the family of God. He is, the Holy Spirit is in our hearts with the presence of Christ on earth. But at this moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's what the Bible says. But there will be a moment when he stands up from his throne and literally steps into the corridors of time and descends into the atmosphere of earth from which he rose into the heavens over the Mount of Olives 2,000 years before. And when he comes, it will be a complete sensory overload, Paul says. It will be hard to miss by those who love him. Here's what he says. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Some scholars say, well, those are three different sounds there. Others say, no, it's just one sound described in three different ways. Quite honestly, I don't care. It's going to be loud. Those of you who don't like the drums, get ready. This is a big moment. Volume. Clarity. It will be heard by those who have placed their trust in Christ and it will pierce the earth, it will split open graves, and cemeteries will empty, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's an amazing thing. Um, if you're a history buff, Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, he actually planned his own funeral. Interesting factoid. And what Churchill did is he had a trumpet player perched in the highest reaches of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral. And after Churchill's coffin was lowered into the ground, the bugler played taps. You know what that one is? Which is typically played at military funerals. And after the last sorrowful note faded, Churchill's biography says he had hidden another trumpet player across the way, and high in another gallery, the stronger blaring notes of revelry sounded. You know that one? The wake-up call, the symbolism was by no one. He was a follower of Christ. And Churchill said, I want the call to sleep to be followed by a call to wake up and arise because that's what's going to happen. The return of Christ means there will be a resurrection. You'll notice here that the resurrection at the rapture will not summon all the dead, only believers in Christ. A time will come much later on when all the dead will be raised to stand before God's throne for judgment. This is not that moment. At this first call, our believing loved ones who've already died will be first in line for their resurrection bodies. And in verse 17, if you look at it, this is where we get the word rapture. If anyone ever asks you, there it is. Look at it. Take a look at it. It says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be, let's read those two words, what? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Those words caught up, that's actually Latin. The word is rapio or to sneeze, to, to sneeze, achoo, no. To seize or snatch away, like snatch. And this catching up or this snatching up, this, this rapturing up will happen in the twinkling of an eye, not the blinking of an eye. Don't get that confused. That's too long. Blinking of an eye, meaning the time it takes a fraction of a, of a light particle just to cross your iris, gone, sting, snatched up. And one commentator put it this way. I love this. Listen to this description. He said, millions of people from all parts of the earth feel a tingling sensation pulsing through their bodies. They're suddenly all energized. And physical deformities are healed. The blind suddenly see. 
wrinkles disappear on the elderly as their youth is restored. And as these people marvel at their physical transformation, they are lifted skyward. They, those in buildings pass right through ceiling and roof without pain or damage. And as they travel heavenward, some of them see and greet those who have risen from the graves. After a brief mystical union together, they all vanish from sight. Don't try to do the science. This is a supernatural event. It sounds fantastic, but there are some prototypes of this in the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 11.5 tells of Enoch. He says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found. Why? Because God had taken him away. Remember in the fall, we looked in Acts 8 at the interaction of Philip with the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. It says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Rapio. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Each of those throughout the Bible, there are prototypes of sorts or previews of what will happen en masse when Christ returns for his people. There will be a resurrection, there will be a rapture, and finally there will be a reunion. Look at verse 17. It says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is a sweet reunion. If you've ever been to family reunions, you know what it's like when you haven't seen a family member for a while and it's just an amazing kind of... Or maybe, maybe you don't like family reunions. It's okay. Even your nasty relatives will be transformed. It's okay. This reunion has three aspects to it. You get this? Dead bodies will be reunited with their spirits. Resurrected believers are reunited with living believers. And then resurrected believers and raptured believers are reunited together with the Lord. And again, this is a source of stunning hope in a world where there's like so much sorrow. I know in my own family's life, this past fall, the reality of this hope taught us what it means to truly believe. So this past fall, my grandmother died. She was 94 years old. That's a lot of years. She was a believer in Jesus, and she couldn't wait to be reunited with her God towards the end and be reunited with her husband, Andrew. But my little girl, Chase, was heartbroken. This was her beloved Nana. And she said, Daddy, I'm going to miss Nana. And I said, Chase, I'm going to miss her too. But, you know, this isn't the end. She kind of looked at me. And so we took out the Bible. We looked at the book of Revelation, where it says there will be no more sorrow or sickness or pain or tears in heaven. And it was interesting because she got very, very quiet and I could see her wheels spinning. So the next day at the funeral, I'm organizing my notes and Chasey comes up to me and hands me this picture she made. And you can see it, the gold streets of heaven, the precious gemstones. And she said, Daddy, that's where Nana is. And I'm going to see her someday. And I said, yes, you will, Chasey. You will see her someday. See, whether we die or whether Jesus returns, Followers of Christ have this precious promise. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the hope of the rapture. That's the promise for everyone who trusts in Christ as Lord and Savior. Live or die, we will be reunited with each other and with Him someday. My favorite part of her picture is where she wrote, Nana, see you someday. 
I said, you will, Chasey. For Christians, death is not the end. It's just the beginning. For those who pass ahead of us, it's not goodbye forever. Instead, we say, see you later. Because when we do, we will be with the Lord forever. Death is not goodbye forever. For Christians, it is simply see you later. Because maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but when Christ returns for the living and the dead, one thing is promised, and so we will be with the Lord. What's the word? Forever. Forever and ever. That is a long time. It means uninterrupted union with God and with each other for eternity. Do you see how clear, how hopeful the rapture is? There will be a return, followed by a resurrection, then a rapture, and finally a reunion. Paul ends his teaching with this simple instruction. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Some translations say comfort one another with these words. See, folks, in the end, the rapture is not meant to be scary or like some source of fear. It is meant to comfort and encourage us. When I conducted my grandma's own funeral this past fall, we stood around her casket. Everyone took a flower, dropped it on it, and we committed her body to the ground and said, see you later. We'll see you soon. This is not just the child's picture. This is the promised prophecy of the living God. It's not child's play. It's not invention. If we are absent from the body, Paul says, we are present with the Lord and we'll be with the Lord forever. Amen? If you take a look at our chart, you will see what the future holds according to the word of God. And there is some divergence of opinion among scholars. I mean, exactly, you know, what sequence the rapture is in relation to the, tri to the tribulation. You know, the, just humility again. Good people can still disagree and not miss the big E on the eye chart. What's the final destination on the journey? Eternity. And everyone agrees, everybody spends forever somewhere. And I'm just going to come, you know, right out and just ask you totally awkwardly, if you haven't made a choice to believe, do you know? Do you know where you're spending eternity? My grandma was 94 years old when she met Jesus. Simon's niece was 10. Life is short. Just this week, we have seen more signs of the Lord's imminent return. We have seen it. Contractions, birth pains, new life about to come forth. And no matter wherever we are in this prophetic timeline, one thing is certain today we are closer than ever before in history. I believe the rapture itself, um, if you take a look at this, will most likely trigger the tribulation, that seven-year period, uh, seven period of chaos and suffering. That's predicted in Revelation. We'll touch on that next week. But it makes sense because, as I said, Jesus' followers, he said, but you're, you're, like, you're the salt of the world. You're the light of the earth. Salt is used to preserve. Light illuminates truth. So when the rapture happens, all, all believers suddenly removed from the face of the earth, all the sight, all, all, the, all the light, all the salt will be gone. And without salt, things decay. Without light, things get dark. And that's what the tribulation is defined as, a period of un, unparalleled darkness and decay. I want you to imagine millions of people, some estimate a billion, disappearing from the face of the earth. There will be shock. There will be 
confusion, how to explain it. There will be chaos, most likely state of emergencies being declared, phone lines jammed, unmanned cars. You know, this is the, the kind of thing that they show. But think of this, Christian leaders in, in, in like, who are leaders in the world, who led at least with a modicum of humility because God's spirit was in them, they will be gone from government. And the only ones left in power will lack the restraining ministry of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus himself described what will happen next. He said, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. And as that prophecy is fulfilled during the tribulation period, those who've been raptured will watch that horror from the windows of heaven. In a lot of ways, the rapture is like God's evacuation plan for his church. He will remove his people from the earth to spare them the trauma when the, when the tribulation breaks out. Maybe you remember a few years ago, I think it was in California, the wildfires. You remember that? There were literally, I think I have it down here, there were 16 raging fires swept across Southern California, and there was the largest evacuation in the state's history. 350,000 homes, 1 million people were told to leave within the hour, and neighborhoods just like emptied out because they were warned as the flames grew closer and closer. One of the purposes of prophecy is to warn us to be ready, to be prepared. And the rapture is God's evacuation plan for his people. It's not the idea of an angry God. It's just the opposite. Why do you warn someone? You warn someone when you care for them, when you love them, because you want to spare them pain. God wants us to be with him so badly he didn't spare his own son for heaven's sakes. Jesus came the first time to this earth to die on the cross as a sacrifice for my sin, for your sin. When he comes the second time, it will be to judge the earth. So there's a, there's a sobering you know, thing here. We live in the age of grace, but God is a God of justice. And look, guys, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to sell you, I'm, but I am going to ask you, are you, are you ready? I mean, if Christ... If Christ returns tonight, tomorrow, four years, 14 years, do you know for sure where you're going? If you do know, do your family, does your family, do your friends know? In California, only those who are on the emergency contact list got a phone call telling them to evacuate ahead of the coming fire. The Bible says only those who have put their full trust in Jesus Christ will hear the trumpet call of God and be evacuated to heaven before the coming trouble. Are, are you one of them? Are you ready? That's, I'm just, just point blank. Can you with confidence like, point to a moment in your life where you put a stake in the ground and you said, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior because I am not the Savior and I believe you are. I'm not asking if you went to church. I'm not asking if you tried to live a good life. But if you personally ask Christ into your heart, and I'll just be candid here. I'm asking that question as much for me as I am for you. Because you know what? Someday I have to stand before God and give him an account. As your pastor, as your teacher, as your shepherd, I have to tell him I told you exactly what his word says. And today I've tried to be as clear as I possibly can because tomorrow's not promised. But you can leave here hopefully. You can, I, I, I look at the future, and I'm like, i got two little kids, and I'm raising them in this chaos. But you know what? I have, I have confidence. I have, a, I have 100% certainty that whether I live or die, I know where I'm spending eternity. 
And when the call comes, I will rise and meet him in the air, and many of you will as well. Do you know that for sure? Not a doubt in your mind. Do you know that? Take a, let's take a moment. Let's just pray together. I want to give you an opportunity to pray. Those of you who are believers, maybe you have never made that decision. <clears throat> if you have trusted in Christ as Savior, let's just pray together. Father God, we thank you. Gosh, thank you. Thank you for salvation. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth and broke through time and space to save us. We acknowledge we are not our own Savior, and that's why we need you, and that's why we love you. I thank you, Father, that you have taken on sin and death, and it will be no more one day. And I thank you that you are the perfect judge, and evil and, 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 and wickedness will literally be washed from the face of the earth in a way that will just leave people rejoicing. I can't imagine that. But we are thankful to you for calling us your own, for taking on our sin, and for putting your Holy Spirit in us. And we look forward to your return. We were really looking forward to it, Jesus. If you are not a Christian, you have never made that decision and said, Jesus, be my Savior, you can do that now. You don't need me. I'm not a, you don't need a priest. You don't need someone to pray for you. You simply pray to God. If that is you, this is a very simple prayer. You can simply pray after me. In fact, let's just all pray this out loud together. All right, can we just do that just to acknowledge what's, what's happening here? Let's pray it together. Jesus, I need you. I am not my own Savior. I believe you are God, that you died for me, and I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask your Holy Spirit to come into my heart. I ask you to lead my mind into your truth. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.